Amen. Well, good morning. Okay, so that song fires me up. I'm not going to lie, it totally does, man. It, it fires me up. I love the message of that song. I love the reality that that song was written by a collective of worship pastors from all over South Florida called the Village Hymns, of which I serve on the board and of which Ryan is a part. Amazing, incredible ministry. I love the words of that song. I love the fact that it's being sung right now in churches all over South Florida, five different counties. Think about that. That's historic. What we're experiencing with Undivided right now is a historic movement of the Lord. And I think it's just the beginning of that movement. Like he's just getting started in bringing his people together. And that's, that's what we've been talking about. So if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, either in person or online, so hi to you out there. Uh, You know that this is the third and final week in a series of messages that churches all over South Florida are doing and that we are collectively calling Undivided, but you know as well that two weeks ago I said, hey, you know, Undivided uh, is both our opportunity and it is both our challenge as well. Therein lies the opportunity and the peril. The peril lies in the reality that at least for a lot of us as individuals, we are not Undivided. As churches, God's doing an amazing thing. But as people, particularly now, We're divided. And I think the problem runs a little bit deeper than that. Like the problem runs deeper in that depending on who you are and maybe what you look like and how you voted and where you stand on this issue or that issue or whatever, you know, it's kind of like, I may not want to be undivided with you. Like I'm definitely united with this person and with these people, but I don't know that I want to be united with these people and definitely not that guy and all of that stuff. And yet again, undivided, guys, is our calling And in it lies the opportunity. It's the key that opens the door to this amazing opportunity that stands before the American church, particularly right now when our country is divided over so many different things. How stunning is it if a diverse people are united? Who gets the glory for that? Because it isn't us. It's the one who unites us. Look, as I said two weeks ago, one of the universal pursuits of mankind for as long as mankind has been in existence is the pursuit of unity and diversity. We've always understood that we are a diverse people and there are great strengths in our diversity. Like every different kind of person or people group on the planet has something to contribute to the whole which makes us all better and richer in some sense. It's wonderful, but it's also inherent within that. Our tensions inherent within that is tribalism inherent within that. Our fragments and competition and you get the idea. And so for the whole of humanity, we've been looking for that thing, that one, that whatever that could take us all and help us to realize all the benefits, but in a peaceful way by bringing that which is diverse together in unity. And for the last 2,000 years, Jesus has been going, hey, 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 I got this. Like, this is, this is me. This is what I do. I've got a case study. I've got proof of concept. Just look at my people. Oh, wait a minute. Don't. Maybe not. It's awesome what he's doing amongst churches now. It really is, and it gives me unbelievable hope for the future. He's doing what only he can do. But as a collection of individuals, too, I think we've got to look at ourselves and go, all right, who am I unwilling to be undivided from? 
So two weeks ago, we made the case for church unity. We said, listen, just as Jesus is powerful enough, think about this vertically, to make us one with God. Imagine that kind of power for a minute, to remove every obstacle, every barrier, every sin, everything that stands between us and the eternal, holy, all-powerful, all-knowing God. He makes us one with God. Paul says, okay, you know that power that makes us one with God? Yeah, turn that on its side because it applies horizontally as well. It applies to me and to you and to anyone else who names the name of Jesus. There, the calling is there, guys. The power is there, and even the purpose is there. That's what Winston talked about last week. Winston said, hey, listen, the purpose behind our unity is to do what? It's what I'm talking about. It's to, to go to the world and go, listen, there is one who can unite all of us who are diverse. And he must be sent from heaven because it takes a heaven-sent, God-like power to do this. And today what we're going to talk about is, all right, but what does it require of me and what does it require of you to really be undivided with my brothers and sisters in Jesus, no matter what we disagree on, no matter how diverse we happen to be? And the answer to that, as Drew said earlier in the service, is love. And it's not a Tom-like love for you and it's not a you-like love for Tom or a me-like love for somebody else or a them-like love for me. That's not enough. Like, can we just acknowledge that? Like, at some point we run out. It's like, I love you, I love you, I love... Okay, that's it, that's a barrier I ca- you've crossed and I can't deal with, right? It's human nature, It's the love of Jesus in me for you and you for me. And man, if the love of Jesus is anything, it is an overcoming love. It overcomes all of the obstacles between us and God. Paul says that while you were yet enemies of God, Christ died for you. It's astonishing. And it overcomes the barriers between us and us as well. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 13, beginning in verse 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. And how is that? Selflessly. It's preferring you above himself. It's taking your interests and placing them above himself. Jesus Christ, to have you, loved you so much, he went to the cross for you. He suffered infinitely for you. It's astonishing. He says, okay, like with that in mind, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then what does he say? He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have this kind of love for one another. Because when you have love like that for one another, when a diverse community comes together and is united with that kind of love, Overcoming all the differences, overcoming all the barriers, natural and otherwise. Okay, people notice. It's like the world's going, we've been looking for that and found it nowhere. And what they notice is not so much us, but him. I think we see a great example of that in Mark chapter 2 in a story that takes place in a little seaport town on the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee called Capernaum. I've been to Capernaum several times. Uh, It is not a functioning town presently, but you can go there. It's really well excavated. A lot of you have gone on our Israel trips and you've been there. But it was the hometown of Peter and Andrew. It was also the home base of the ministry of Jesus in that region of Galilee. And by the way, the overwhelming majority of the ministry of Jesus takes place in that region of Galilee. 
But for purposes of our story, it was also the hometown of a paralyzed man. And here's the deal with this paralyzed man. We don't know his name. We don't know anything about his family. We don't know how he became paralyzed. We don't know how long he, be- he was paralyzed. But we do know the fact that paralysis back then was even more challenging than it is today. And the reasons for that are obvious. I mean, you know, back then they didn't have rehab facilities and treatment centers and in-home nursing care. They didn't have handicapped bathrooms. They didn't have any of the modern-day conveniences by which making going to the bathroom is a bit more discreet. Like, they didn't have vans and cars and buses and handicap-accessible vehicles. They didn't have wheelchairs, motorized or otherwise. So what that meant for this guy in the first century is that his entire life was confined to a mat that was probably about three feet wide and six feet long. And the only time he got out of the house was when his four friends, who also lived in this city came to his house and they used their hands and their legs and their feet and their backs and their bodies and they picked this guy up and they took him somewhere. That's the only time he left the house. And by the way, he left the house pretty much every day because these guys would show up no doubt in the morning and they would pick him up and then they would bring him out to the place where he would beg for money day after day after day after day after day. He, he had his spot on the side of the busy road. And everybody in town knew who he was, and they knew that that was his spot. And if he wasn't there, they were like, where is he? This is, this is where he is. And then at the end of the day, his friends would come back, and they'd each grab a corner of the mat, and they'd bring him home and lay him back down in his home where somebody would have to bathe him, clean his clothes, feed him. Worse than all of that even, or just to add insult to injury, in that day, and this is errant thinking, it's not biblical thinking, but in that day there was a stigma attached to this kind of a a disability, this severity of this disability. People thought something like this. They thought, you know, good grief, God has cursed this man, which no doubt he believed. So he would lay there, I'm sure, in the dead of the night, staring up at the ceiling, thinking, what in the world did I do to deserve this? Like, I mean, just rehashing his life, rehearsing his sins. Do you think it was this, or maybe it was this? I mean, and what about this? Or maybe it was the accumulation of this, or, you know, I went to college. Probably it was the whole of that. Like, really? And thinking as well, my goodness, if this is the judgment of God on me in this life... What happens at the end of this life when I pass into eternity? Like, what's judgment going to look like then? Because if you have to concern yourself between the two, this life's this long and the next life is, well, it never ends. But if you know the story, this all changes when he meets Jesus. And if you don't know the story, but you know a little bit about Jesus, you're probably thinking, all right, so Jesus is coming into town. He sees the guy in his spot, and he heals him. It's actually not what happens. You start running through the rest of the options. You're like, all right, so somebody comes to Jesus in town and says, hey, do you know the guy on the side of the road? You know, and he's just like, would you go heal him? And Jesus goes over and heals him. doesn't happen. All right, so the guy's at home then, because this is what's left. And Jesus hears about him and somebody talks him into going to see the guy and Jesus goes to the guy's house and then he heals him. No, the guy goes to Jesus. Now, obviously not by his own power, but by the power of his four friends who were united together in love for each other and for him. And I think for Jesus, 
Again, this is the home base of Jesus. All these guys live in this little town, and it's a little town. It's not a big town. They had heard Jesus preach and teach in the synagogues. They had heard him preach and teach in various houses. They had seen him do miracles, no doubt, and certainly heard about all the miraculous things that he was doing basically everywhere that he went. In faith in this Christ, in love for each other, united together in mission to the paralyzed in this moment. They say, yeah, bud, we're not taking you to the street to your spot today. Uh, We're going to take you to Jesus because he's in town and we're thinking he's the one you need to meet. But they're too late. It says in Mark 2, beginning in verse 3, that they came bringing to Jesus a paralytic carried by four men. So there they are. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, well, they gave up and they went home. And that's the end of the story. How disappointing. Let's pray. No! That's not what this kind of love does. Is it? They show up and Jesus is teaching in a house and it's a tiny house. Like if you've seen the show Tiny Houses, okay, that's a mansion compared to what we're talking about. Real small. He's in there. It's packed out. People are all in there. You can't get in the door because people are crowding around the door. You can't get in the windows because people are crowding around the windows and everybody's straining in and pressing in and trying to hear Jesus. Like they show up and they're like, oh, good grief. We have no shot of getting him in there. So what do they do? They go up the staircase on the side of the house. You're like, why is there a staircase on the side of the house? Because they use the roofs of these houses, the flat roofs, for patios. And they oftentimes they slept up there at night. It's hot. They don't have AC. Cool of the day. They enjoyed the roof. So they brought their guy up there and they laid him on the grass, which sounds really weird, doesn't it? I mean, like if you have grass growing on your roof, uh, that's not probably a good thing. You know, like it doesn't seem like a normal, but it was normal then. See, the houses were made of stone. You can go and see the excavation today. You see the walls. Reconstructed them in large part. So they had stone walls, but then they would take wood timbers and they would place them across at about six-foot intervals, the, the stone walls. And then they took mattings of branches, which they kind of crossed and mixed up, and then they put mattings of branches on top of the timbers. And then they took mud and they poured about a foot of earth on top of the mattings of branches. And then they planted grass and then they went and slept up there at night and enjoyed the cool of the day and went up there during the day and said hi to their neighbors who were like, there was no space between the houses but a wall. Like They took him up there and they placed him on the grass. And then with their hands, which is all they had, they started digging through the roof. Mark says in verse 4 that when they could not get near Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above Jesus. And when they had made an opening large enough to drop a three-foot wide, six-foot long mat down on, like with ropes on the corners, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And you can picture this. You know, Jesus is in this tiny little house. There's no air conditioning. You've got a solid wall here, a window or two maybe there, one door there, maybe a door behind him. Everybody's packed in. It's the Middle East. It's hot. It's stuffy. It's frankly smelly. I mean, you know, their hygiene was a little different back then. They didn't have the advantages that we do. People are straining in and pressing in around the windows and doors. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of his teaching, there's this ruckus on the roof. 
And it doesn't go on for a little while. Like, I mean, you know, this doesn't happen in five seconds. Boom, boom, roof open, drop. This happens progressively. And like progressively, people in the room are going, what in the world is going on on the roof? And little pieces of mud starts falling through, you know, like you got a little thing in your hair. It's a twig or something. Let me get that out for you. You get the idea. Like you're looking up. Now you're getting stuff in your eyes. And then the dust begins to rise up off the floor and people are choking and sneezing and pulling their shirt over their face, you know, like the homeowner is on the phone with State Farm, you know, like, is there coverage for this? This is vandalism. I say State Farm because we have State Farm agents in our church. It could have been all state, right? No. He's on with State Farm like at some point the sermon's over and everybody, if they can, is looking up and then light starts to stream in through a little hole in the roof and eventually you see four pairs of hands, four sweaty, muddy faces, and they rip a hole big enough to drop a three-foot-wide by six-foot-long mat with this guy on it down in front of Jesus. And look, here's the deal. Everybody there knows why they have done this. The man is paralyzed. His body is lifeless. He's living, but in many ways, physically, in terms of his capacities, he's dead. He's been lowered through the earth in faith that Jesus will raise him. So what does the Lord do? It says in verse 5, and when Jesus, what, saw their faith, what does that teach you about faith? It teaches you that it's visible, that it's actually something that has evidence of that you can see. I think it's a remarkable opportunity to just kind of survey your life and say, you know, I came to faith in Jesus here. Am I different? He looks up and he sees their faith. And then he says to the paralytic who is now laying in front of him while everybody is going, okay, what's going to happen next? He says, son, your sins are forgiven you. And then, you know, like a party breaks out on the roof, right? Like, I mean, all four guys are like, wait, what? Because that's greater than anything we thought about. Like they're high five and they're singing, how great is our God? Like they are, they're going crazy. Inside, you know, the paralytic's like, yeah, actually probably he's just like, yes. All the other people are clapping. They're joining the praise choir. None of that's happening. They're all looking at me. I'm like, what? We didn't dig through the roof for that. It almost sounds like you're trying to get out of it. You know, it's like, I know you spoke the worlds into being and everything, but it seems like almost like a cop-out, like Jesus is looking at the paralyzed guy going, "Eh, you know, if he had a cold or something, but he's paralyzed. This is a little... Much, I think I'll just go all spiritual on these guys and go, your sins are forgiven. Because you can't see the evidence of that. It's not at all what Jesus is doing. The first thing he's addressing is the fears of this man in the dark of the night. And you might have those same fears. You know, you look at your life and you go, hey, this thing is eventually going to give way to eternity, and then what? But there's one who loves you like this. There's one who has made provision for the whole of your forgiveness, no matter what you've done said. There's one who speaks a word of forgiveness to you that is an eternal word of forgiveness. When you come to him and you lay your life down at his feet, 
He raises you from the dead spiritually. And what he does with this man is he addresses his biggest problem first. But nobody's happy, and most especially the scribes who were there, who were critics of Jesus, who were looking for evidence that they could use to try to diminish Jesus because Jesus, well, frankly, has diminished them, it seems. They're not happy. It says, now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their heart, which is a dangerous thing to do around the Lord, and they're thinking this. Why does this man, Jesus, speak like that? He is blaspheming for who can forgive sins but God alone, which is kind of the point, isn't it? I mean, their thinking is correct. Who can forgive sins but God alone answer? No one. What they haven't connected is that Jesus is God. And so immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, which incidentally is language of resurrection, take up your bed and walk. And don't answer that too quickly, because it seems like it would just be easier to say, son, your sins are forgiven. Move on. It's not. That statement required Jesus later to take upon himself that man's sins, and even in some sense his paralysis. You're like, what do you mean by that? I mean that Jesus was nailed to a cross. He can't move. If he's going to get anywhere after that, he's going to have to be carried like the man on the mat. Talk about identifying with a man. Son, your sins are forgiven is far and away the more difficult statement. But Jesus continues and he says, but so that you may know that the son of man, that's me, has authority on earth, that's where we are, he says, to forgive sins, which is what I just did. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, language of resurrection, pick up your bed and go home. And then he, this man who's Lifeless body had been lowered through the earth. You've seen how we lower coffins, haven't you? In faith in Jesus who would raise him. Comes to life. It's fascinating. Like It's not like all of a sudden he regains his feelings and he goes, all right, you know, I, I can feel my fingers and toes, but I have no musculature, and now I do need to go to a rehab center where they can work me out, you know, and finally I'll be able to sit, and then maybe I'll be able to stand, and then I'll, I'll be able to walk, and I'll be able to re-coordinate my you know, limbs, and I'll be able to feed myself and take care of myself, and eventually I'll get a job, and probably about nine months from now I'll be able to do some, if not all, of those things. That's not it. He just gets up. Immediately, he picked up his bed and went out before them all. It's a complete and total healing. And it says, so that they were all, and I love this because this is what happens when God's people unite together in love for paralyzed people. They were all amazed by Jesus and they glorified God saying, we have never seen anything like this, which is what South Florida will say when in love for one another we unite together as churches for the sake of the spiritually paralyzed in this region of the world that God has entrusted to us. It's remarkable. And we all agree on doing that. That's amazing. So Drew talked about the Church United uh, Night of Worship, which is coming up a week from Wednesday, again, December 2nd at 6.30. It's at Calvary Chapel of Fort Lauderdale. 
man, I want you to come. I really do. Like, I want you to come and just get a taste of it. Like, I want you to come and go, oh, my goodness, this is amazing. I want you to get a feel for what the Lord is doing. I want you to come and gather with your brothers and sisters from all different kinds of churches and join together with them in prayer that God would would come in his spirit, that he would bring the revival for which we have sung and for which we have prayed and over which here we have taught. Please be there. It will be good for your soul. But then as an individual who has gone through a really um, difficult year, a divided year, I close with this question for you. Who or what do you love more than your brother or sister in Jesus? And I don't mean, you know, the people that are easy to love. I mean the people that you disagree with. Who or what do you love more than your brother or sister in Jesus? Because whatever it is, isn't just standing between you and them. It's standing to some degree between the United Church's ability to reach the world with Jesus or not. What does he say? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another by this. All people will know that you are my disciples, if notwithstanding all of the things that would otherwise divide you. You have this kind of love for one another. Let's love each other like this. And let's do what this requires of us in love for one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, that you have uh, come to us with a love that made your son go to the cross. It took a cross-like love to unite us to yourself. And it takes a cross-like love to unite us to each other. I pray, Lord, for those who are fearful of what the next life brings, who look at their lives and they fear your judgment, not just here, but most especially there. I pray that they would feel a relief as they come to you this day and they bring to you their sin, their past, their errors, their their fears, their guilt, their shame, and all of these other things, and they lay them down at the feet of the one who was paralyzed by being nailed to a cross, immobilized for them, and who stayed there in love that their sin, the debt they owe to God, might be paid in full. That he might speak a word of freedom. Your sins are forgiven through faith in me. Oh, let the night terrors go. And let the joy come. And I pray too, Lord, that you would reprioritize our hearts and even our loves. Augustine said that sin is disordered love. It is loving things in the wrong order. Where our loves have been disordered, put them back in place. Let us have a Christ-like love for you, our Heavenly Father, and let us have a Christ-like love for each other. We pray that you would unify your people that the world might know that Jesus has been sent by God. Do this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.